The path of compromise only seems easy, but ultimately it's not the easy path. After all, the fear of man is a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If you are making your decisions based on the path of least resistance because you want to avoid conflict because conflict is uncomfortable, you are not loving other people, you are loving yourself. And that's an important thing to remember. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding, where we talk about the news of the day and the issues that matter from a biblical worldview. I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. Today is a special program. Today, there are no guests. It's just you and me. And today, we're going to talk about something that every American Christian needs to be prepared for, Pride Month. We'll all be navigating workplaces, city streets, social media feeds, and corporate events celebrating Pride Month, what's really become an international holiday. The first thing to understand about it is that Pride Month does not mean the same thing to everyone. Now, as you know, for many, Pride Month is seen as a month of inclusivity and tolerance where people are seen and reminded that they matter. And in many ways, these are values Christians share. There's no reason for us to object to the idea that people matter. And of course, we want to communicate that same message to people. Of course, there's a divide because the message of pride is not that people matter because they are created in the image of God. That's a message that Christians not only agree with, we started. Actually, God started it. We're just the messengers of that. In contrast, Pride Month is a declaration of independence against nature and nature's God. It's a declaration that we are responsible to no one and nothing. It's a claim that we can do whatever we want and no one can stop us. That's what we take pride in. Live your truth. Live authentically. Well, it's not just the message that Christians have a problem with. The fact is the symbolism has come to represent forms of oppression, intolerance, and in hate. And the rainbow flag, which has now become much more than a rainbow flag, there's 20 or 30 or 40 different versions of it as it continues to be updated because different identity groups get added to this milieu of LGBT identity groups. Uh, these symbols are, are the symbols behind which, from which we're getting speech codes, businesses have been closed, people are being harassed because they don't share the commitment to the sexual revolution, or they won't affirm the idea that men can become women and get pregnant. And we know the bakers and the florists and the print shops and all of the small businesses that have been harassed endlessly in some cases just because they do not share the value system of the sexual revolution. So when someone like that walks down a city street that is lined with rainbow flags, it doesn't feel like freedom and happiness and celebration to them. It feels like there is a dominant cultural power around me that hates me and is trying to destroy my life, trying to close my church, trying to take my children from me in some cases. And if you live in California, they'll kidnap your kid and then cut their genitalia off and then send them back to you whenever they're done doing what they're doing. And that's what the law allows, right? So if you live in that kind of regime, it doesn't feel like freedom and it doesn't feel like happiness. Now, the timing in an American context of, of Pride Month is very interesting and I think worth noting because it follows Memorial Day and it comes right before the 4th of July. 
And what is, of course, Memorial Day? Memorial Day is the day that we celebrate people who have given their lives so that we can be free. And on the 4th of July, we celebrate our national independence. And in significant ways, we celebrate people who have pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor so that we can be free. Those who gave their lives for our freedom get one day. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, they get a month right between those holidays. If that doesn't seem right, that's of course because it's not right. But what we don't want to do is become angry or panic. Panic is certainly not a fruit of the Spirit, and God has never panicked. One of my favorite sayings of all time is that has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? And that fact that God has never had something occur to him is because God has never learned anything. He's always known everything. He's not taken by surprise. So when there are new developments in our culture, he's not shaken by them, right? So we don't need to be either. And so we want to think soberly. We want to act biblically. We want to maintain our joy. And ultimately, uh, we want to find the gospel opportunities that are in these moments uh, because that's really what we are here to do is to be the contrast to the fake joy and the fake pride. It's actually real pride in, in, in the worst sense. Now, there are things that Christians can take pride in. And what Paul tells us is we, we uh, rejoice in our weakness because in our weakness, uh, God's power is made clear, right? So we have um, some sense of pride in what God is doing in us, but ultimately that goes, the glory goes to him. But let's talk about how we wade through Pride Month, how we deal with this, navigate this in a way that uh, allows us to be who God wants us to be in this moment. I've got nine things for you to remember, and in some cases, maybe to do. The first is remember that pride celebrations are not new. Now, it feels new to us in an American context. This specific manifestation is new, but really, um, Pride started in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, Eve, with Satan's help, of course, convinced herself that doing things her way would help her become like God. That was the argument that Satan made. It's the argument that he's been making ever since. Um, perhaps Eve felt enlightened. Perhaps she decided she was spiritual, not religious, and all of kind of these rules that God had given her, although in fact there was only one rule. That's the irony of the situation. She could do anything she wanted. The only thing she could not do is eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that one rule had to be broken because she just did not want to do what she was told. Now, and she observed, this is the rationalization that she went through in Genesis chapter three, we read about this. She observed that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable to make unwise. And here's what happens here uh, that is really instructive as we observe everything that happens in pride. She convinced herself that her rebellion was not actually a rebellion, that it was virtuous, that it was desirable to make one wise. That's what we all do. And before we get self-righteous as we observe the pride stuff, we have to recognize the ways in our own lives we have done the same thing. We know God does not want us to do something, but we rationalize to ourselves the idea that this is actually going to be good. This is actually going to be virtuous, so we go ahead and do it. That's, this, that's the root of pride. That's what's happening all month, all over the world. All the rainbows is basically saying, yeah, God may have said we shouldn't do that, but we found a reason to 
communicate to ourselves why our rebellion against God's design is actually the right thing to do and anybody disagrees with us, they're really the immoral people. That is the argument that they have made to themselves that they will be um, arguing to the rest of the world who will be observing what they are doing. We as Christians need to understand it's a problem but it's not new in our own ways. We've all contributed to that. So in significant ways, Adam and Eve had the first pride parade, and we've all been paying for it ever since. Second, you can love the way God wants you to love, or you can love the way the world wants you to love, but not both. You're going to see a lot this month about love. T-shirts, memes, parade signs, they will declare that love is love, that love wins. Now, whether Christians can agree with these sentiments depends on how the word love is defined. Proponents of the sexual revolution would have us believe that we should love someone by affirming their identities, indulging their desires, and just encouraging each other to live your truth. But of course, God's definition of love is very different. Scripture reminds us that love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful, right? This is all from 1 Corinthians 13, and that's the part where everybody says amen. But here's where the great divide happens between God's love and the culture's understanding of love. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, Paul writes, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Some translations say iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. This is the critical verse where God's understanding of love and the culture's understanding of love diverge. God's love forbids the celebration of things that God does not celebrate. But the world's understanding of love requires it. So when they tell you you need to love people, the answer to that is yes. But you have to understand how God wants us to love people. And he said, certain things I cannot tolerate. And th this is an important Part of this is the fact that God is not tolerant. God is not tolerant. The world wants God to be tolerant, and they want you to think God is tolerant. God is love. God is not tolerant. And the whole reason Jesus had to die is because God cannot tolerate sin. So he expects us not to tolerate sin as well. Why is that? Because sin is the thing that separates us from God. God cannot abide with sin. If we have sin in our lives, we cannot be with him. All God wants is for us to be with him. So we have to get rid of the sin because that's what separates us from him. And the world is saying, if you love me, you will support and cheer and applaud my sin. And God is saying, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth because that iniquity, that sin is the thing that keeps you from me, not just right now, not only does it cause pain in your life right now, though it does, it keeps you from me forever. Therefore, if you are going to love your neighbor, you cannot celebrate the thing that separates them eternally from God. And that's exactly what the pride movement, as we will see uh, all month of June, is asking you to do. Do not do it. Number three, no one is beyond the love or reach of Jesus. And this, of course, is the counterpoint uh, to the, the last point I made. And this is, we have to keep this in mind. Christians are right to separate ourselves from celebrations of sin but we should be equally careful to avoid different but an equal kind of pride, which is self-righteousness, right? If Christians have any goodness in ourselves, we do not deserve the credit. 
After all, we read in Titus that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So rather than a sense of self-righteousness, Jesus modeled how our hearts should respond to people who are lost. And I'll read here in Matthew 9, verses 36 through 38. He said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. When we see crowds who are lost, we should be moved to compassion, not self-righteousness. They are seeking for truth. They are seeking God. They are seeking belonging. We have the answers to all of those desires. God is the answer to all those desires. They are looking in the wrong places. We should be moved to compassion so that we can see the pain that is behind all of the pride, all of the pride, and say, actually, I've got something better for you. And what we can count on is the fact that what they're trying right now is not really working. All of this pride facade, the reason it's it's kind of, as, as Shakespeare would say, the lady doth protest too much. If you have to insist over and over and over and over again how happy you are and how proud you are of who you are, that's a really good indication that there's a lot of conflict inside of you about who you are and there's a lot of pain, which is not the joy that they are actually looking for, right? Right? So the people who are fighting so hard to convince you that they're happy, that they are proud, are likely to be uh, the most painful and really the ones most in need of Jesus. So when they see real joy, when they should see it in you, that presents gospel opportunities. Fourth point, don't be afraid. Now, this month, uh, some will encounter city streets with these rainbow flags. You're going to see people say things. You're going to see uh, you know, children even exposed to things that they should not be exposed to. And despair might be something that you are tempted with. Remember, fear is never from God. Whatever situation you're dealing with, God is not surprised by it. It is not beyond his control. He knows, however, that we are prone to worry, which is why Peter encourages us to cast all our anxieties on him. The same God who formed the mountains and put the planets into orbit is aware of our situation. He's aware of the American situation. He's aware of the global situation, and he's handling it. The good news is that our moments of weakness are the moments where God does his best work in us. While the culture takes pride in their independence from God, we should be boasting in our dependence. I actually... Uh, referred to this just a moment ago. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the response. That's the counterbalance to the fear that we might be tempted to feel about, oh, I'm losing my country. I'm losing my city. I'm losing whatever. Isn't everything terrible? Isn't the sky falling? Well, it's actually not the worst it's ever been. We can go through history and we can go to, you know, first century Rome. That was a pretty debaucherous place. We know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and what God did to that place, a very debaucherous place. Yes, there's lots of problems in America. Yes, there's lots of problems in the world. Is this as bad as it's ever been? Answer to that is probably no, but it also kind of doesn't matter because whatever 
context God has placed us in. We have an assignment, and that assignment does not involve being afraid. It does not involve being self-righteous. It means it involves being his ambassadors. The fifth thing that we need to keep in mind in Pride Month is that being a Christian is supposed to feel weird. Now, that's what happens during Pride Month, is depend, especially depending on where you work. Some of us work in uh, workplaces where you know, we're being asked to put our pronouns in our email signature lines. We're, be, we're being asked, in some cases, to participate in the corporate participation at the Pride event. You'll be encouraged to do that. Somebody's going to come to your office and cubicle and give you a flag and ask you to display it as a sign of solidarity, show that you're an ally. And you're not going to be able to do that for the reasons that we already discussed because you cannot rejoice in iniquity. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth, which means we can't participate in these things. So that makes us feel different. And the reality is it's human nature. Most of us prefer not to feel different. We don't want to feel like outsiders. We want to blend in. We want to avoid the conflict. We want to not be noticed. We just want people to think that we're nice people to them because we generally have good intentions, right? But how do we respond to when we feel different? We need to remember that this is not our home. I'm going to read from 1 Peter here, 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The first part of that, as aliens and strangers in the world. That's who we are. We are in a hostile environment And, you know, in America, it's much less hostile uh, for us than it is for people in other parts of the world. And for that, we can be grateful and we are to work to make sure that it remains a place of relative freedom and prosperity and success rather than kind of sliding into some version of Afghanistan or Pakistan or North Korea, right? But we're not supposed to love the same things as the world around us. We aren't supposed to love the world. You can't serve two masters. You can serve God or you can serve mammon. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's 1 John 2.15. So, if being a Christian makes you feel different than other people, good. That means you're doing it right. The real problem is if you live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel and never feel different. If you get along perfectly, amiably, always comfortably, if your hearts are connected to people who are serving a different God than you, and if you never have any differences with them, that's a real problem. That's a much bigger problem than feeling different. That feeling of difference just in many cases represents the fact that you are different and you are expected to be. And so that might be evidence that we're doing it right. So don't see that as a problem. Number six, don't give an inch. Now, it is possible to avoid feeling different. All you have to do to avoid feeling different is to do what everyone else is doing. Just provide your preferred pronouns, tolerate a flag in your office, In other times, in order to avoid feeling different, all you need to do is keep your mouth shut, right? These are the temptations that are offered to you. Just cooperate when you're supposed to cooperate and stay silent when you're supposed to stay silent. And if you do those things, then you will never feel different. The Christian responsibility is not to take the bait when that's offered. We cannot cooperate with this. The path of compromise only seems easy, 
but ultimately it's not the easy path. After all, the fear of man is a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If you are making your decisions based on the path of least resistance because you want to avoid conflict because conflict is uncomfortable, you are not loving other people, you are loving yourself. And that's an important thing to remember, right? It's really easy to rationalize seemingly small compromises. We're all aware of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. All they had to do to avoid being thrown into a fiery furnace and incinerated forever was to just simply bow, just a quick little bow to these idols. And they could rationalize it any way they want. God knew their heart, right? He knew they weren't actually worshiping the idol. They were just trying not to be burned alive. They didn't want, you know, if they were burned alive, what use were they to God anymore? They could have made those rationalizations just like you and whatever your context is and however you're experiencing the temptations that Pride Month offers and the um, the encouragement to go along, to get along, just to avoid conflict and not look like the hater, there are rationalizations that you can go through, but they are not worth it, right? They are not worth it. If God is who he says he is, he is very capable of rescuing you from whatever threats that they have, and he will. But following the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the statement that they made in that case is, our God can rescue us from the hand of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, when he threatens to throw us into the fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your idols. And it is that attitude that actually changed the heart of the king of Babylon and changed the nation of Babylon, at least temporarily. It wasn't because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brilliant and super winsome and, you know, great marketers and likable people. It was because they actually believed who God was. They put everything in God's hands, said, we're going to obey whatever the cost, and God used their radical obedience to show his power in ways that people had not seen and turn the heart of the king, right? So what you need to give God most is your obedience. Understand that we're going to love the way he does, even if it costs me everything, and then just see what happens, what he's able to do with you. Because the world is looking for different this world that is so proud, claiming to be so happy, claiming its own personal self-created identity is so miserable. They want to see actual truth. They want to see actual joy. They want to see something that is real that actually can be depended on. And the only way we can show them that is if we actually believe what God has said and live on the basis and live like we actually believe what God has said. Number seven. Remember what you're saying yes to. This is really important because during Pride Month, uh, Christians are sometimes required to say no, and we've talked about the things that we cannot participate in, right? So as a result of that, we are often accused of being anti-everything. Why are you so opposed to everyone's joy, right? And these are the moments it's helpful to remember that Anytime you say no to one thing, it's because you're saying yes to something better. When we say no to doing whatever we want to do sexually, it's because we're saying yes to virtue, discipline, delayed gratification, uh, and the satisfaction and intimacy that comes from forming relationships God's way, right? When we say no to the idea that boys can become girls, 
We're saying yes to our created purpose. We're saying yes to finding our identity as God understands that to be. When we say no to bad ideas, it's because we're saying yes to better ideas every time. And it might even be a good idea to rehearse that for yourself and duck your kids about it because you are likely to have an awkward conversation sometime during the month of June where somebody's like, why are you not like uh, down with the struggle? And why are you so negative about everything? And we are not negative about everything. We just know better, right? We understand where that path leads and it's not to joy, it's not to flourishing, it's not to belonging, it's not to purpose. It's to pain, misery, and sadness. And so all we have to be able to do is be prepared to remind people what we're saying yes to that's better than the things that we're saying no to, right? Number eight, pray for those who curse you. Now, one reason Christians shouldn't be surprised when we're misunderstood or mistreated is because Jesus spent a significant amount of time telling us what to do when that happens. Now, in Luke 6, 28, he says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, all right? So what does that presume? It presumes that people will curse you. It presumes that people will abuse you. That means we have to pray for those who treat us poorly. Jesus, and also in the same passage there in Luke chapter six, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. What does that presume? That there are people who hate you. And we in the church, some of us have come up with this concept that if somebody hates me, I'm definitely doing something wrong. And I would encourage you, well, you can do things wrong that will make people hate you. And if it's sinful, repent and believe and change, right? But the fact that somebody hates us is not necessarily evidence that we have done something wrong. People hated Jesus. That's why they crucified him, because he was telling the religious rulers of the day, he was challenging their authority. He stood against the proposition that you could save yourself. He challenged all sorts of cultural dogmas and cultural truths, and he challenged their political power and their social power and all of those things, they hated him for it. And so they killed him. And so we find ourselves in a very similar situation. And why is it important to love those who curse us and hate us? Well, Jesus pointed out in Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same, right? So this is a great opportunity to improve your prayer life, if and when you find yourself in very personal ways in conflict with people who do not understand, though you communicate to them what you're saying yes to, while you say no to other things, they don't get it. So they slander you. They might even try to hurt you in, in other ways that are more meaningful than just slander. But when they do, the biblical response to that moment, because Jesus promised us it was gonna happen, is pray for them. Love them, love those who don't love you for what reward do you have if you only love those who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. That's really easy. The real work of the gospel is loving people who hate you in return. That's how you know you're actually being Jesus because that's what he did. He died for people who were killing him, right? He, those were the people that he died for and we can go and do likewise. The ninth point, Remember that pride comes before a fall. And uh, there's so much irony in the fact that those who started pride events use the term pride to describe it. 
they named the entire movement after one of the seven deadly sins, and a sin that Proverbs assures us is the prelude to our destruction. That's what we see in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's almost as if God uh, was trying to make it obvious to us in communicating what's actually happening here. And so just as we would be wise to avoid celebrating uh, Wrath Month or a lust parade, Christians should be very wary of celebrating pride because we all know what happens next. Now in my closing thought here, I want to talk about Daniel chapter 5 and King Belshazzar. And this is the chapter from which the phrase, the writing on the wall, comes. And most of you will be familiar with the story. Belshazzar is the reigning king of of, uh, Babylon. And it's an interesting time because Nebuchadnezzar, the chapter refers to him as his father. He's not his biological father. It's kind of father is referring to kind of a a um, a predecessor in power. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar was the king for more than forty years, and now there's this kind of this young guy named Belshazzar, who actually his dad was in charge, but his dad had kind of abandoned the post in Babylon and left Belshazzar uh, in in charge of this city, and. The Medes and the Persians are about to invade Babylon. And Babylon had been the strongest empire for so long. They had so much power. They had walls around their city that were seven chariots thick, that were, to their mind, impenetrable. And they had been secure and safe and in charge for a very long time. They had reason to think that it was impenetrable because in Belshazzar's life, no one had ever penetrated them. He'd lived there very comfortably, very safely for a very long time. But the power was kind of waning and Belshazzar didn't seem to have any sense that he might be threatened by anything. So as the as Babylon is being surrounded by an opposing, potentially invading army, Belshazzar throws a party. This is what he does. He gets all of his military people together and they just are going to live it up in part as a way of just flaunting his lack of concern about anything that's going on outside these walls. We're going to be fine. We are protected. We are secure. You know, up yours invading army. We're not concerned about you. And there's something else that happens in this. And we read in Daniel chapter five, verse three. They brought gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple because previously Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Jerusalem. They had invaded the temple of God and they'd taken all of these vessels out that were meant for for sacrifice and communion uh, and service to God. And he made a point to go get those vessels so that they could drink out of them and so that they could essentially flaunt and mock God and prove how unconcerned he was about any other power, earthly or supernatural, to his authority. He was secure and confident, and he was mocking God. And, you know, and it actually made me think of a very contemporary story when I see the way that Belshazzar is flaunting and mocking God uh, just before, and his demise comes the next day in this story, right? 
Because this, in the last week in the news, we've heard a lot about the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And the reason we've heard about them is they're, it's a drag queen group in Southern California uh, who was invited to be part of a series of events, uh, LG, the Pride Night, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, the baseball team in Los Angeles. And the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, as the name kind of suggests, is intended to mock not just Christianity, but very specifically the Catholic Church. They are a, a mockery of a nunnery. Uh, they kind of, they, they wear these habits uh, as drag queens. Um, they all have very profane names. Probably the only one that we can say in public is Porn Again is the name of a drag queen. And you kind of get the sentiment, get the point that they're trying to make, right? All of it is mockery. The Catholic Church explained this to the Los Angeles Dodgers who said, yeah, that's really offensive. We probably shouldn't have them involved in our Pride Night. So they disinvited, temporarily, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. But what happened when they were disinvited, of course, the entire Rainbow Coalition came to the defense of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and said, no, they must be included. Long story short, the Los Angeles Dodgers caved and they re-invited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. To give you another indication of who they are, they have a twerking Jesus where they get somebody dressed up like Jesus. They even put a crown of thorns on his head and then he just does profane things in public, right? So they are working overtime to figure out how to be as offensive as possible to mock Jesus as intently as possible. It's not that different from what we saw Belshazzar doing in Daniel chapter 5, right? He's been in power and authority for a very long time. He feels very good about himself. The walls surrounding him are still very thick as they have been his entire life. They have never been threatened. He has no reason to think they are going to be threatened anytime soon. Go ahead and knock on those doors. You can't get through those walls. I am safe. And then what happened? What happened? Well, God disrupted this guy's party. A finger shows up and writes a message on the wall. Now, what we know from the story is that Belshazzar did not even know what that message was because he had to call Daniel in and get an interpretation of it. But his response was really interesting because the, we read in verse 6 that the king's face grew pale, his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking. This guy was really afraid. Why is this? Because this, at this moment, we see fake power encounter real power. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. And he liked to think he was the highest power, but he was now encountering real power. And he likely heard the stories because Daniel had been in Babylon for a very long time. He knew that people had been rescued from a fiery furnace. He knew that there were people in touch with God who had interpreted dreams before. He had heard those stories, but he didn't care because it was in his best interest to do whatever he wanted and not surrender. But this is a moment in which Belshazzar is encountering real power. And here's the deal, friends, is that when you are on God's side, when God shows up, it's exciting. When you are not on God's side, when God shows up, it's terrifying because your conscience will testify against you one way or the other whose side that you are on. And it is really important for us to make sure 
that we are on God's side. There's a movie called Captain Phillips that some of you may have seen. Long story short is Captain Phillips was the captain of a, of a freight ship off the coast of Africa. The ship was taken over by Somali pirates. And those Somali pirates took the ship. Eventually, they took Captain Phillips because they were really just primarily looking for ransom. And so they took Captain Phillips and they put him on this life raft, essentially. It was a much smaller boat than the freighter. And they were going to run off to the coast of Somalia and they were going to hold him hostage and hopefully get a ransom at some point uh, for his life. And they're on this boat that's probably, I don't know, 15, maybe 20 feet long, a small enclosure. There's three or four pirates and there's Captain Phillips. And those pirates were acting really, really tough because they were in charge of that boat. And Captain Phillips was, in fact, unarmed. And he had no real authority to fight back. He had no means to. He was outmanned. He was outgunned. All of those things, right? So Captain Phillips is vulnerable on that raft. Now I'm going to uh, issue a spoiler alert. It's an, it's an old movie. If you haven't seen the movie, you need to. But I'm going to tell you the ending right now because it's really important anyway. But what happens at the end of this is that Captain Phillips is an American citizen. And the American military got word that an American citizen had been taken captive from this freighter. And they were going to go do something about it. And so there's this scene at the end of the movie where these pirates, they'd roughed up Captain Phillips well and they were acting all big and tough on their little raft. They're sailing through the ocean and suddenly comes into view from the rear is an American battleship. And that totally changed the dynamics on the boat. Why is that? Because that battleship was not there on behalf of the Somali pirates, tough as they thought they were a few minutes previously. They were there with Captain Phillips. And suddenly, Captain Phillips' position is much, much stronger because he's with the battleship. And suddenly, the Somali pirates didn't feel so tough anymore. That's what's going to happen again here on earth. You're going to see a lot of people over the month of June feel really big, feel really tough, feel, feel really strong. Undoubtedly, they have cultural influence right now and they are going to flaunt it and they are going to flex it and they are going to try to intimidate everybody around them into thinking, you can't do anything about me. But here's what we as Christians need to understand, that God is going to show up. And when real power meets fake power, the fake power knows it immediately. And when that happens, it's our job to make sure that we are on God's side, right? They talk a lot about being on the right side of history. God is the right side of history. It's literally his story. It's history. God is writing it. And these, these are temporary moments where people get proud, people get excited, we think we're important, but ultimately God is going to show up. We sometimes feel like we are, we've been kidnapped, right, by, by pirates. We've been kidnapped by people who just want to harm us and that we have no authority, we've lost all control. And in some cases, we may have lost control and whatever control we may have thought we had was always an illusion because God is ultimately in control of the situation, but he allows things for his purposes. He allows moments. It's our job to be ambassadors for Christ in those moments, to be confident, to believe what he said, use the gospel opportunities that he presents to us because he will, 
to bring relief to the suffering, to bring joy to the, to the miserable, to bring real love to those who are looking for fake love in all of the wrong places. That's our job. And when God does show up, and he will, he will be vindicated. And those of us who remained on his side, who remained on the right side of history, will also be vindicated. So Pride Month presents challenges, but with those challenges comes opportunity, not only to grow in our understanding of God and who he is, but to present the gospel to people who desperately, desperately need it. Friends, thanks for joining me on this special episode of Outstanding. Be in prayer, be encouraged, don't be afraid. God is always at work, even if there's rainbow flags up and down the street. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. I'm Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.